Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Please join me in prayer once more. Uh, Heavenly Father, we we thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, God, thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Um, Thank you for Jesus and all that he's accomplished for us. God, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, you would open our eyes to see Jesus more clearly. God, that you'd help us to uh, repent of our sin and turn to you for your mercy, and that from that, Lord, we would rejoice and have greater love for our, the neighbors around us, Lord. So please be with us in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most people think that they're going to go to heaven when they die. And if you ask them why they think that, they'll normally say it's because they're a good person. And if you ask them what a good person is, they'll probably say something like, it's just loving people. Well, many years ago, Uh, When I worked in retail, I definitely considered myself to be a good person. I thought I was pretty loving towards everyone, and I tried really hard to get all my managers and coworkers to, to like me and to think well of me, and I felt like I was pretty successful, but there was this one coworker in particular who I never seemed to be able to win over. For all my efforts to be kind and to be a team player, he just never got on the Daniel is awesome bandwagon. And it didn't help that we're the only two associates in the store who ever got the regional all-star associate reward. So we were kind of rivals in my mind, whether or not he knew it. Um, He'd sell the most extended warranties, then I'd sell the most extended warranties. I'd be buddies with a general manager, then he'd be buddies with a general manager. And so, if I'm honest, in my heart, there was part of me that despised him. You know, somehow he was this black spot on my record. He was the one associate that I couldn't turn into an affirmation of my own goodness. He called into question, was I as good as I thought I was? And in our passage today, we're going to listen in on a conversation where Jesus explains what we have to do to get eternal life. Jesus is going to help us to diagnose if we're good enough, if we're loving enough to get eternal life. And there's nothing more important that you can ask yourself. Your eternity might depend on your answer to this one question. And if there's even a possibility that you may be wrong, then don't you want to know what you need to do? And our main point today is going to be this. Access to eternal life is not based in what you know, but who you love. Access to eternal life is not based in what you know, but who you love. We're going to look at this in three points. Knowledge isn't enough. Love isn't enough. Mercy is enough. So let's start with our first point today. Knowledge isn't enough. So for context, remember that last week Jesus said that God the Father has hidden what he's doing from the wise and understanding. And immediately we're being introduced to one of these wise and understanding. He's a lawyer, not in the sense that we would think of a lawyer today, but rather he is an expert in the Old Testament law. And so why is this lawyer concerned? 
Well, everything about him is defined by God's law. The law is his source of status and authority. His entire profession is based in his ability to uh, rightly interpret and obey the law. But Jesus just got done claiming exclusive access to God, and he's even telling his disciples that their names are written in heaven. So it seems like Jesus is teaching a way to eternal life that comes through him and completely circumvents the law. And this is very concerning to the lawyer. And so the lawyer thinks he's got the perfect question to challenge Jesus and expose where Jesus has gone wrong. So let's read Luke 10, verses 25 to 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer asks a good question. But of course, we know that the lawyer is not being sincere. He's trying to test and critique Jesus. But surprisingly, Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer. Rather than contradicting the law, he upholds it as the standard for eternal life. Now, we might not like the idea of a standard. You might think that's outdated, but every culture has its own standard. Today, the standard is be a good person. But how do you know you're meeting that? Can you really be certain that you're good enough when you're compared to someone else? Will the current cultural norms be enough to justify you in the end? We don't want to just think we're going to heaven. We want to know for sure. And Jesus points to scripture as the standard. He asks the lawyer, what does the law say? And the lawyer quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and he gives the correct answer. The apex of the whole law, the chief thing that God requires is to love him and to love others. Is this mic doing okay or it's good? Okay, thanks. And loving God and loving your neighbor kind of sounds like being a good person. But let's think about what it really means to love God. The first problem with the statement, I love God, is that it matters who you're talking about. It's no wonder everyone loves their own ideas of God, because apart from the Bible, we, we each imagine that God is a lot like us. The things that are important to us are important to God. The things that we're okay with, he's okay with. The things that we want to do, he wants us to do. But is my God the true God, or ultimately, is my God just a reflection of me? The lawyer looks to scripture and quotes from Deuteronomy, and he's reciting part of what was called the Shema. It, it was the basic foundational statement that Jews recited often. And it began this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it continues, you shall love the Lord your God. So first, Lord in the Hebrew text was actually God's personal name, Yahweh. He revealed this name to his covenant people. So it's not just a generic conception of God. It's an exclusive relationship with the one true God of the Bible. And this love is real, genuine affection that you feel, but 
It's more than a sentiment. Loving affection leads to loving action. So the rest of the commandment just amplifies the intensity of this love for God that the law requires. You are to love him with all your heart. And if you trace that word heart and how it's used, you'll find that the word for heart includes all of your emotions and affections. You feel merry or sorrow in your heart. Your heart can melt or it can feel glad. You desire in your heart and then your, your actions proceed from your heart. But the heart also includes your intellect. You think and know in your heart. You devise plans in your heart. So you're commanded to love God with all of your emotions, affections, and thoughts. And then it says to love God with all of your soul. And the Hebrew word for soul actually includes your physical body too, not just a disembodied spirit. He's basically saying to love God with all of your being or all of your existence. And finally, it says to love God with all of your might. And the Hebrew word for might um, gets translated as both strength and mind in the Greek. And that's because the, the word in Hebrew, it actually means very or, or much. It takes a word and brings it to the maximum potential of what that word means. So you're to love God to the maximum of every capacity you have, devoting every bit of who you are to him. And then finally, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And love for yourself is not actually being commanded here. Um, you know, sometimes you'll hear that you need to learn to love yourself before you can truly love others, but he's already assuming that we love ourselves. Elsewhere, it says, no one ever hated his own flesh. Um, even when I've said that I hate myself for the way I am, the reason I wish I was different is because of the benefit I would receive in my life. My life would be better if I was different. So at the root, I still love myself. So instead, the command assumes you love yourself and says that you must take that same concern you have for yourself and bend it outwards to love your neighbor. And so love for God with all that you are, produces love for your neighbor with the same concern you have for yourself. Jesus says, if you can do this, then you will live. Notice that the lawyer answered correctly, but then Jesus tells him to do this. It's not enough for the lawyer to know the law. It's not enough to know right answers. And that's sobering for those of us who like reading and talking about the Bible and theology but it's dangerous to let what we learn just be theoretical. All over scripture, we're encouraged to grow in the knowledge of Christ, but it's knowledge that accords with godliness. If it doesn't help you love God and others, then you might be growing in knowledge, but it's knowledge that puffs up instead of love that builds up. Should I switch mics here? It's doing good? Okay. In all of the lawyer's knowledge, he still hasn't grasped what the law requires. Remember, we said access to eternal life is not based in what you know. If the lawyer would look to the law as the means of becoming worthy of eternal life, then he must do all that the law requires perfectly. 
I heard a story of a missionary who likes to read his Greek New Testament on airplanes. And he does it as kind of a conversation starter with the person sitting next to him. So one time, someone asked him what he was reading, and he told them. And, and somehow they got on the topic, and the, the person asked the missionary what you have to do in order to get eternal life, what you have to do to go to heaven when you die. And the missionary replied with something like, oh, that's easy. Just be completely sinless and never do a single thing wrong from the moment you're born till the moment you die. And then he went back to reading. Now, of course, the man sitting next to him was alarmed by that answer because we all know that nobody can be perfect. We all have plenty of things we regret. Um, There's plenty of things we would be embarrassed for others to know. But the law functions as a mirror. It forces us to take an objective look at ourselves and see ourselves for who we really are. In looking at God's objective standard, we have to acknowledge that we don't meet it. So that man on the airplane was having the same experience that this lawyer did. And the missionary, in imitation of Jesus, was ready to point the man to what he needed in the man's response. So let's read verses, uh, verse 29 together. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So this lawyer is feeling a bit exposed right now. But notice that he doesn't focus on the command to love God. Apparently, he thinks that he's already doing that. But the command to love your neighbor as yourself is a little more tangible. So do you see how by asking the question, who is my neighbor, the lawyer's trying to still make it a knowledge issue. He'd rather debate with words than take an honest look at his life. So the, the lawyer's trying to narrow the definition of who his neighbor is so he can narrow his responsibility to something more manageable. If he can do that, then he can congratulate himself that he meets the criteria. He deserves eternal life. You know, we all justify ourselves with our own subjective standards, yet somehow all of us end up with the same verdict. We all think, I've done enough. I'm a good person. Loving our neighbor sounds nice. It's a nice sentiment, but Jesus is going to make it concrete And he's going to do this with the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And this leads us to our second point. Love isn't enough. Let's read verses 30 to 33. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So the setting of this parable is a dangerous road that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And the terrain made it easy for thieves to hide and ambush travelers. And that's exactly what happened to this man. He loses everything and he's left half dead. And then it says, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And at first we would think, well, what luck? Of all the people to show up, this priest is the one most likely to help this Jew. Here's someone who's wise and understanding. Here's someone who knows and keeps the law he goes out of his way to pass by on the other side. 
Next comes a Levite. They are also ones that studied and interpreted the law. And they assisted the priests at the temple. If the priest was too important, then certainly this Levite would stop to help him. But he also intentionally goes out of his way to pass by on the other side. Both the priest and the Levite share ethnicity, geography, religion with the man on the side of the road. But neither of them are willing to stop. They both know the law. They've both been set apart for ministry but neither of them are willing. Now, before we come down too hard on the priest and the Levite, you know, we remember that we've all walked places at night where we didn't feel safe and we just wanted to get where we were going as quickly as possible to get somewhere safe. And especially in this situation, because there was proof right there in the half dead man that there was a real threat. The thieves might've been hiding nearby, just waiting to ambush someone with a bleeding heart. And maybe they felt that helping the man would interfere with their ministry. If the man died in their care, then they would be unclean for seven days. You know, that could throw off their plans. You know, how often have you seen a need and thought, I don't have time for this. And so their fear and their self-importance keep them from getting involved. They block out the man's suffering. He's just not worth the risk. And it's at this point that Jesus introduces a Samaritan. Now, if it had been a Jew instead of a Samaritan, then maybe the moral could have been something like, don't be like the hypocritical religious elite. Just throw off the outward religion and get your hands dirty. And that message would have resonated with a lot of us. But instead, he chooses to introduce a Samaritan. Now, it's hard for us to feel the impact of a Samaritan coming on the scene. When we hear the word Samaritan, probably what we think of is this good Samaritan. You know, or maybe we think of organizations like Samaritan's Ministries or Samaritan's Purse. But when a Jew heard the word Samaritan, the farthest thing from their mind was that a Samaritan could be good. And that's because Samaritans were remnants of the northern tribes of Israel who had been conquered centuries earlier And they had assimilated with foreigners who relocated there. So they were almost like a counterfeit Israel with a mixed ethnicity and different worship while claiming to serve the same God. So they were hated by the Jews. In fact, the first time Luke introduced Samaritans was in the last chapter. And we saw how eager James and John were to suggest calling down fire from heaven to consume them. But unlike the priest and the Levite, Jesus casts this Samaritan who has different scriptures and a different place of worship, and he puts him in a positive light. So this was completely scandalous. All three saw the man, the priest and Levite passed by, but it's the Samaritan, the one who bears no political or ethnic or geographical responsibility, the one who's hated by the Jew, this Samaritan is the one who had compassion. And compassion is where the story changes direction. So let's read verses 34 to 35. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
So he goes to the man, he binds up his wounds, he pours on wine as an antiseptic and oil to soothe his skin. He sets him on his animal. So did you notice that the Samaritan now has to walk? He brings him to an inn and takes care of him all night. The next day he goes even farther. He pays two days wages. He's an advocate with the innkeeper. He secures further care for the man and he promises to come back and pay the bill. Now, needless to say, the Samaritan didn't get where he was going on time. He was tired from walking and caring for the man, and his money bag was a bit lighter. This was costly compassion. So Jesus has finished the story, and now once again, he asks the lawyer a question in response to the lawyer's own question. So let's read that in verse 36 to 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You know, I've always read this story as if it were answering the question, who did the good Samaritan consider to be his neighbor? But that's not the question that Jesus asks, is it? Or maybe you've heard a lesson on this, and you were asked, are you like the priest, the Levite, or the good Samaritan? You know, we naturally identify with the good Samaritan and see the story through his eyes. The good Samaritan's an example of how I should love my neighbor as myself. I should consider the homeless or others in needs, and I should imitate this kind of mercy. But Jesus asks the question in such a way that it forces the lawyer to say something that he would hate to say. Did you notice the specific words the lawyer used to answer the question? He said, it was the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't actually call him the Samaritan. It's almost as if he can't bring himself to say it's the Samaritan who's the hero. He would have held the priest and the Levite in high honor, but he's stuck having to affirm his enemy. So why did Jesus cast the Samaritan as the hero? Well, did you notice the difference between the lawyer's original question and the question that Jesus asked? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks, who is the neighbor of the man who fell among robbers? So Jesus restates the question and he equates the lawyer with the man in the story who needed mercy. The person dying in the road is the one that the lawyer's meant to identify with. And he's the one that we're meant to identify with. The lawyer focused on defining the word neighbor. But Jesus actually focuses on the as yourself part. If you were half dead in a ditch, you wouldn't care if the person passing by shared some affinity with you. Who cares about similar interests, political views, social class, religious affiliation when you're dying in a ditch? You you just want the person to have mercy on you. So who is your neighbor? Anyone who, if you were in their shoes, you would want them to show you mercy. You desire to be shown mercy, and that that desire causes you to drop the restrictions on who you recognize as your neighbor. It's whoever you come across who needs mercy, no matter how different or on the outside they are, even if it's your own enemy. You know, this story is an easy one to help promote social justice, 
months ago, I even had the thought that maybe when we got to this passage, it would be a good time to promote our mercy ministries. But are you starting to see where the story relates to mercy ministry and where it's actually emphasizing something else? This story absolutely elevates compassion towards others. We see an example of mercy, and it should make us want to care about people who are suffering and ignored. But what is Jesus' main point? The bigger issue is that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves because we hate Samaritans. In that retail job, I tried to evaluate my love based off of people who were easy to love. But loving my neighbor as myself would have included the difficult coworker. Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who is it that you want to avoid? Maybe it's your next door neighbor who's a nuisance. Who's on the other side of the issues? We're in election season right now. Maybe it's a family member with different political views. Who do you naturally feel superior to? Maybe it's a friend you feel snubbed by. Who do you not forgive for what they've done to you? Maybe it's your ex-husband or someone who you feel like they just ruined your life. We all want to narrow the definition of who our neighbor is, just like the lawyer did. Remember that love for your neighbor uh, was the more tangible of the two commands, but love for the Lord is supposed to be with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, Loving your neighbor is secondary. It's supposed to be an expression of love for God. So the fact that the lawyer falls short of loving his neighbor exposes he doesn't really love God. John says something similar in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, where it says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen So even if you know the Bible is true, is it really God that you love? What did the religious lawyer really love? He may have loved reading God's word, giving money to good causes, praying, studying theology. But if he loved God as the law required, he wouldn't hate Samaritans. The lawyer wanted to test Jesus, but it's the lawyer who doesn't pass his own test. Oh, he can give the right answer, but there's a contradiction between the answers he gives and what he does. His affirmation of the law was not enough. His love for his Jewish people was not enough. He needed something more because of the sin in his own heart, the same sin that's in our hearts. Access to eternal life is not based on what you know, but who you love. And brothers and sisters, we all fail the test. None of us is worthy of heaven because all of us have our Samaritans. Whether you're religious or not, if you're looking to your own goodness to get you into heaven, then you are just like the lawyer. Whether you're dressed up in relativism or legalism, you can't fix the things you know you've done wrong And you can't make yourself good enough to be not guilty by God's standard. So do you meet his standard? Do you still think you've done well enough to inherit eternal life? And that's where Luke ends the passage. Jesus raises the standard impossibly high and then says, go do it. 
There's no mention of the gospel. There's no mention of grace. Why end the conversation here? Well, the key to understanding Jesus' response is to remember the question that the lawyer asked. The lawyer didn't ask how to be saved. He asked what the requirements were, what he has to do to be saved. And the lawyer is confident he already knows the answer. It's obeying the law. He just hadn't counted on being condemned by the very law that he thought gave him life. The wise and understanding don't even understand the most basic command of their faith. Jesus is the one who is actually taking the law seriously. And the law demands perfect love. They can't see their need for mercy, so they can't see their need for Jesus. They think they need to protect the law from Jesus, but it's them who need Jesus to protect them from the law. The lawyer assumes that it can't mean what it says because it's impossible to do. But that's the point. The goodness that God requires for salvation has to come some other way. Jesus held up the mirror of the law to show the lawyer God's true standard so that he would see his own need for mercy. And so this passage actually shows us an example of how God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. It's not that Jesus refuses to dialogue with the lawyer. It's not that the lawyer yearns to know Jesus, but God intervenes and prevents him from seeing Jesus. Instead, Jesus actually takes him to the very point where he should recognize his need for mercy, his need for Jesus. But instead of humbling himself and acknowledging his need, he's self-righteous. He justifies himself. You won't receive the cure for a disease you won't admit. But Jesus chooses to intervene and reveal his father to those who best display his grace. Not the wise and understanding who look like they've earned it, but to the weak, the outsiders, and the no accounts who can do nothing but receive his mercy. If the lawyer had acknowledged his need for mercy, he would have found that mercy was right there. And this brings us to our final point, mercy is enough. The story ends without the lawyer acknowledging his need, but what about you? Remember that in the story, you aren't meant to see yourself in the Good Samaritan. Spiritually, you're worse off than the half-dead guy. He had been you, you have been stripped and lay bare in your guilt and shame, beaten and left half dead by your own sin. You may cry to the law for help or to your own standard, but there's no help there to be found. You are even more incapable of reviving yourself. You're already dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't need something to do. You need Jesus. And Jesus, greater than the good Samaritan, shows us God's mercy. Though you were hostile to him, Jesus journeyed from heaven to come for you. He's the one who had compassion on you. He's the one who cares for you. Jesus is the one who binds up your self-inflicted wounds. Jesus himself was poured out for you. He himself bore the cost of your sin on the cross. He gives you himself and promises to always be with you. You don't need something to do. You need him. The Samaritans in our lives reveal that we lack the love the law requires, but Jesus has loved us as he loved himself. He has done what the law required. Because he met God's standard, he was able to die in your place to pay for your sins and offer you forgiveness. Because he met God's standard, he has lived a perfect life in your place 
so he can offer you his perfect record. So everything necessary, Jesus has already done for you to inherit eternal life. And the majority of people have heard Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But then if you ask them, they still think they're going to heaven for being a good person. There's a disconnect that just renders the cross meaningless. Don't leave here today thinking that. When you stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in Jesus, you can have confidence that you have eternal life. Just receive the gift. So what will your answer be on the day of judgment? Don't live with the sad uncertainty of not knowing whether you've done enough to get into heaven. You have to decide if you will trust in your goodness or in Jesus' mercy. And that's the primary point of the parable. But what about those of us who have already given up on our own merit and put our trust in Jesus? Well, the whole Christian life is one of continually repenting and turning to Jesus. We see our sin again and again, and we see his mercy again and again, and his grace leads us to worship. But God didn't just give us these commands to show us our need for mercy. He really does want us to love him and to love others. Jesus didn't just obey these commands to fulfill the law for us. He obeyed them because that's who he is. And he wants us to share in his love. So when Jesus says, you go and do likewise, this is meant to point the self-righteous to their need for grace. But through grace, as his little children with our names written in heaven, our marching orders are still the same. We were once the half-dead man. Now we're to imitate the good Samaritan. But like the innkeeper, now all we need in order to care for our neighbor, the greater good Samaritan more than supplies. We understand what love for neighbor looks like now because we've experienced it in Christ's love for us. Now with Christ dwelling in us, we are called to go and do likewise. And we're gonna think about this quickly through three different points. Mercy for the lost, mercy for the weak, and mercy for you. First, there's mercy for the lost. As one pastor puts it, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. This parable shows us our need for the gospel, but are you willing to be uncomfortable and share this gospel with someone else who needs it? No one likes to look into God's law and see they don't measure up. No one likes to have their self-righteousness and misunderstandings of Jesus exposed. But do you love your neighbor enough to care about where they'll spend eternity? Do you love God enough that you desire for your neighbor to worship him for all eternity? You'll never feel equipped enough. You just have to start. The truth is, with practice, sharing the message of the gospel does get easier. But the act of sharing may always be hard. It is for me. But we have to realize that most of our excuses are really just fear of man instead of trusting Jesus. He's the one who saves people, but he uses little children like you and me, little inarticulate dependent children to tell people about him. You never know when you might be sharing the gospel with someone, as clumsy as that might feel, and it's the exact moment that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to them. Secondly, there's mercy for the weak. Mercy for those in need isn't merely a sentiment. The good Samaritan's compassion cost him something. 1 John 
chapter three, verse 17 to 18 says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And James chapter two, verses 15 to 16 says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So if we have received mercy, then we will inevitably be sensitive to those who need mercy. And that looks like meeting needs that are physical, emotional, and financial. And it would be easy at this point to start promoting our mercy ministries and give you a, a tidy little volunteer slot to sign up for. But that's exactly the specific standard that the lawyer wanted. And Jesus doesn't give him a checkbox. Helping refugees is a good cause. Helping women experiencing an unexpected pregnancy is a good cause. Helping serve the homeless is a good cause. But Jesus isn't after an hour of your volunteer time. He's not after everyone getting a job in social work. He's after your whole life. Is your life characterized by mercy? When people in your life are weak or needy or difficult, do you have compassion on them? Do you humble yourself to serve your closest neighbors, your spouse, your, your children, aging parents or grandparents, roommates, no matter how thankless the job? Are you ready to look out with compassion on whoever you meet in the way? When you're tempted to pass by on the other side, remember where you'd be if Jesus hadn't felt compassion for you. When you're tempted to neglect what's hard because other things you could do feel more important or appreciated, remember where you'd be if your high priest hadn't come for you. When you're tempted to be stingy, remember where you'd be if Jesus hadn't covered the cost for you. Now, some of us need a gentle nudge, but there's also others of us who are really trying to live like this and you just feel exhausted. There's so many suffering people you try to help, but it's never enough. You just can't measure up. And maybe sometimes it even leaves you wondering if you're really even saved. Well, if this describes you, then remember that there's mercy for you. You know, over the past month, if you've driven through the intersection by our old church building, you've seen a wheelchair with flowers in it. And the wheelchair um, belonged to a homeless man named uh, Kyle uh, who passed away. Um. So Kyle used to sit at the corner um, with cardboard sign. He waved at cars that would pass by. And I stopped to talk with him on several occasions. You know, I shared the gospel with him. I prayed for him. Um, I, I brought him snacks or gloves or a blanket, a headlamp. Um, so I cared about him. But I also, I also wrestled with feelings of guilt. Sometimes, on my way home, I hoped that he wouldn't be out there. Because uh, I'd feel like a hypocrite if I didn't stop. Um, in my head, I just start 
excuse me. In my head, I'd just start justifying myself as I drove past, or I'd feel a sense of relief when he wasn't there. Then a month ago, I was driving past one Sunday morning, and his wheelchair was there, but he wasn't. Instead, there were the flowers and notes saying that he had passed away. And so I was really sad that he was gone, but immediately I felt guilty. Um, It had been months since I'd taken the time to stop. I wondered if I had truly treated him the way I would want to be treated if I were in his shoes. I should have been more direct in calling him to repentance and faith. I could have read scripture with him. I could have taken him out to a restaurant or taken him home for dinner. Could I ever have done enough? Am I just kidding myself thinking that I loved Kyle? But dear brothers and sisters, remember where Jesus wanted to take the lawyer. It's those who trust in their own effort that need to despair of not measuring up so they trust in him and they stop trusting in themselves. Don't drift into relying on your own effort You will never reach the perfect standard of Jesus. You can't walk in the relief of his love while also trying to prove you've earned it. You just receive the gift and from humility seek to walk in his love. Remember the compassion and mercy you've received because Jesus proved to be your neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, God, we thank you for the mercy that we have experienced in Christ, Lord. I, God, I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't known that mercy, has not known that grace, Lord, that you would please reveal that to them, reveal yourself to them, and they would trust in you. God, I pray for us who have for a long time called Jesus Lord. God, I pray that the reality of your goodness and mercy towards us would cause us to respond, Lord, with lives that really look different because of the mercy we've received. I pray, God, you would give us an urgency to love others in the way we've been loved, God, that you'd give us an urgency to tell others this good news, that you would give us an urgency to really show mercy and care about people, Lord. Um, God, please, by your grace, help us to grow in these things, but most of all, We just thank you for the relief of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus, who accomplished everything in our place so that we could be reconciled to you and known as your people. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.